Hello, listeners. This is Mary Jo Matta coming to you with a very special Ed Surge on Air Extra. Mitch Resnick is known for his making from a lot of different angles. Mitch has been in the business for more than 30 years, and it's safe to say he's seen the maker movement and the state of STEM education in general go through its phases. He's currently the Lego Papert Professor of Learning Research and head of the Lifelong Kindergarten Group at the MIT Media Lab. He's responsible, along with the team, for the programmable brick technology that inspired the Lego Mindstorms Robotics Kit and Scratch, an online computing environment for students to learn about computer science. We sat down with Resnick at his office at the MIT Media Lab to ask, is making something that every school should be doing? And are all interpretations of making of equitable value? Let's get to the interview. Sitting here with the man himself, Mitch Resnick. Mitch, can you tell us a little bit about who is Mitch Resnick? Well, I'm a professor here at the MIT Media Lab, and I head up a group called the Lifelong Kindergarten Group. And we call the group Lifelong Kindergarten because I've always been inspired by the way children learn in kindergarten. Uh, When children are in kindergarten, they're constantly designing and creating things in collaboration with one another. And in our group, we want to take that spirit of playfully creating and designing things and extend it to learners of all ages. So, you know, one of the things that we've been talking a lot about at EdSurge is the fact that when you have so many different students in existence, I mean, it seems pretty impossible to educate all of them. A teacher, one teacher can't use the same tools as another teacher. So you've been in this business for a really long time. what is it like working with students all over the world? You know, how, how do you um, work with all of these different learning styles? Well, rather than trying to think about how to educate all of these students, I think I'd rather think of it, how can we create uh, opportunities for learning? So how can we create the, the spaces, the technologies, the activities to support everyone having rich learning experiences? And of course, everyone is going to have different pathways to learning. So you have to be aware that no one size is going to fit all. We need to be able to provide environments that allow every learner to find their own pathway to making sense of the world around them and to learning about the world around them. Mm. And so there's been obviously interest in the maker movement and project-based learning. Do you think that that budding interest kind of goes hand in hand with this idea of letting the learners direct their learning? I think it, it, it can and should go hand in hand. I think one of the things that ha- appeals to me about the maker movement is that it's not just about making. Because if you have somebody, uh, if you give a child a set of step-by-step instructions to build something, mm-hmm. and they follow the step-by-step instructions and build something, in one way they've made something, but that's not the spirit of the maker movement. The maker movement is about making things that you care about, things that are meaningful to you and to others around you. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important part of what the maker movement is about. And sometimes it gets misapplied that people just think about if we just get people you know, creating something, that alone is enough. I think that's part of it. But I think to really support rich creative learning experiences, we need to provide people with opportunities to make things but to make things in collaboration with others Mm -hmm. and to make things that they care about. I sort of see some similarities 
between what you just said in um, a an article that a professor from Olin College of Engineering put out recently where she said she's somewhat critical of the maker movement because she feels like the interest is more in the artifact as opposed to the person themselves. Where do you think that risk comes about? Like, why does the artifact and the thing that the person is making, at least nowadays, seem to have more interest or more relevance than the actual process of making it? Um, What's a lot of, it's easy for people to turn their attention to a physical thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes it's not as easy to turn your attention to processes and strategies and practices Mm -hmm. But that is at the core of the learning experience. So I do think it's important to make sure that we help people appreciate uh, the process that goes into learning. Mm-hmm. But pro- for me, process and product do go hand in hand. But there can be a problem if you'll go to the other extreme and focus only on process, but don't really focus on creating something that's meaningful. Uh, so I do think that uh, there's a real value in making a thing. Uh, because once you make something, it's something that you can then reflect upon, you can share with others, you can get feedback from others. There is a value to making a thing, an object of making something, uh, but that alone is not enough. So I think the two have to go hand in hand. There's a real value of supporting people making things, but also supporting them uh, in thinking about the process and learning through the process of making things. Which seems like a pretty, that seems pretty straightforward, but, you know, I used to teach, I was in the classroom, and I I think to myself, just saying, today we're going to make things, especially running that past an administrator, there might be some resistance there in terms of how does this really apply to the learning process. I mean, where what do you think the state of maker education is mm-hmm. in our world today, both domestically and internationally? Yeah. Well, again, it gets applied in many different ways, so there's some wonderful instances of people doing great activities around making and other people who misapply it uh, and do things in a very sort of too regimented way where everybody's following the instructions, doing the exact same thing. We've seen this in some of the projects we've worked on when we've worked with the Lego company on different robotics kits. We see in some places kids doing wonderfully creative explorations and inventions with these kits. In other places, the whole class is told what to do step by step. They all made the exact same thing, which sort of saps all the creativity out of the process. Mm-hmm. For us, helping kids engage in creative learning experiences is our core goal. We think there's nothing more important in today's society than the ability to think and act creatively. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, many educational settings and also many homes don't do enough to support kids developing as creative thinkers. So for us, it's not just about learning the skills of making, but developing as a creative thinker. That's what's most important. So if I want to, if I look at a new maker space or a set of maker activities, what I'm looking for is not the sophistication of what gets made, Mm -hmm. but the creativity that goes into the into the into the process of making. Why do you think that is? So you mentioned sort of you know there's this need to kind of engage in step-by-step processes in some schools, but are there other reasons why educators, parents, education environments are somewhat restrictive or resistant to supporting that creative process? Well, I think there are a few different reasons. One is sometimes it's easier to manage a process if everybody's doing the same thing Mm step-by-step. So there's 
It sounds like the factory model. Exactly, and yeah. and and it's easier to sort of uh, to it's easier to manage it. It's also easier to evaluate and assess it. If everybody's making the exact same thing, it's easier then to assess how well does their thing work. If everybody's making, you know, again building the same robotic car, you can then test how well does your robotic car work, and you can get evaluated based on how well it performs. If everyone in the class is making something different, uh, then assessment becomes a different. Uh, you need different processes for assessment. So I think there's some challenges that people face. So a lot of times people are accustomed to doing to following the path of having everybody do the same thing, so it's easier to manage and easier to assess. Hmm. So it's a little bit of fear then. It sounds sort of like there's some fear in there. Right, some fear, but also just some uncertainty of how to manage and evaluate the process, of just not knowing how to manage this other situation. So, so you guys here at the Lifelong Kindergarten Group, you guys do a lot of activities that have to do with promoting the creative process. Um, what's something that's been, you know, especially near and dear to your heart that you do here to, to support that? Well, I mean, I think... It's probably in, hard to choose. No, but, but in recent years... We put a lot of energy into our Scratch programming language. Uh, and in developing Scratch, we've been guided from the beginning of trying to develop uh, an environment that's going to allow kids to express themselves creatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the ideas that went into it uh, were guided by that. So we often talk about uh, our guiding principles for supporting creative learning. And we talk about four guiding principles that all start with the letter P. Hmm. Projects, passion, peers, and play. So we want to design new tools and activities that engage kids and work on projects. So it's not just solving one particular problem or answering a question, but starting with an idea and carrying it through to make a project. Uh, So we want kids to be working on projects. Passion, we want them to be working on things they are passionate about, that they care about, because we've seen over and over that people are willing to work longer and harder and persist in the face of difficulties if they work on things they deeply care about. The third P is peers. Uh, We know that people learn best when they interact with others, when they share ideas with others, uh, when they're learning with and from one another. So we try to set up environments that are going to support people learning and with peers. And then the fourth P, play, is not just about having fun, but when we think about a playful approach, we think about taking risks, experimenting, testing the boundaries. And we think the most creative work happens when people take a playful spirit and are constantly experimenting and testing the boundaries. Mm -hmm. So when we develop software like Scratch, we were thinking from the beginning, how can we support the four Ps, letting kids work on projects that they care about passionately in collaboration with peers in a playful spirit. It's like when we introduced Scratch, it wasn't just a programming language, but we had an online community from the very beginning because we wanted kids to interact with peers, uh, to have an audience for what they created, and also to be able to get inspiration from others. We wanted to make sure that kids could work on a wide variety of projects. We weren't just going to give a particular puzzle for kids to solve by programming. We want kids to come with their own projects based on things they cared about, they were passionate about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we want to make it very tinkerable, easy to playfully you know, try new things, take things apart, remix what others have made. Uh, so there's a playful spirit around it. So I think to a large extent, the success of Scratch uh, is because 
of the that it's aligned with these four P's of projects, passion, peers, and play. And you have users. I mean, there's Scratch users all over the world. Is yeah. there anywhere in particular that seems extremely invested in Scratch, or do you see multiple pockets yeah. of interest? Well, we've seen it being used all over the world. There's now more than 14 million uh, kids have, have officially registered on the Scratch website, and many more are using it just by downloading it to use locally. Yeah. Uh, more than half of the uh, visitors to the website are now from outside the United States. Uh -huh. So the United States is still the place where it's used most, uh, more than any other country, but more than half of the use is from outside the United States. Uh, we see it everywhere. It's very actively used in Brazil, Japan, Korea. Uh, I was in China a couple of weeks ago and saw active use of Scratch there. Uh, because of some of the constraints with connectivity, a lot of people there are downloading it and using it locally. Mm. But we meet with people from some cities where it's used widely throughout the schools there. So we see it used wherever we travel in the world. I wonder if people, you know, listeners out there who are thinking about, um, you know, engaging in the maker movement, there's, there's this kind of traditional concept of making as, you know, with electronics or with wood or really getting your hands dirty, like physically dirty. Where does the computing movement kind of fit into that? Yeah. You know, are they one and the same? Are they two separate entities, but two sides of the same coin? Yeah. For me, what's most important is the activity of designing and creating things you care about. Mm -hmm whether you're designing things with traditional physical materials like wooden blocks or with new materials like electronics or with virtual materials on a screen, what's most important is the, is the activity of designing and creating playfully with these materials. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's what's most important, not the media or the materials, but what you do with it. Mm -hmm. uh, like that's the advice I give when I, like when parents go into a toy store uh, and they want to think, what are the right types of toys to get for their kids? Uh, and a lot of times they'll think, oh, I know there are not new types of electronic toys. Should I get that? Well, you shouldn't worry about whether it's electronic or not. Uh, you should worry about whether your child is going to be able to design and create with this toy. They get concerned about whether or not it's an electronic? Oh, well, that's what they just they, It seems sophisticated. Mm -hmm. It's going to connect them to what they, you know, the 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 new technologies that are you know, taking over the world. So they think that it's important to sort of be in touch with that. Mm -hmm. So they'll walk in and the amazing toys that you, you know, a, a new dancing doll and you talk to it and it starts dancing or you poke its belly and it talk, talks back to you. And it's amazing technology. Yeah. My concern is that with a lot of those toys, I have no doubt that the designers of the toys learned a great deal in designing the toy. I'm less convinced that the kids who are using the toy and interacting with the toy are going to learn a great deal. Just interacting with technology or interacting with materials is not enough. We really want you know, people to be designing and creating. Uh, again, which is why we have a real connection with the maker movement is that you know, feeling that people are going to learn best not just when they're uh, you know, interacting or accessing information, mm -hmm. but when they're designing, creating, and inventing. Uh, you know, when you design and create something, you're then able to constantly have this back and forth. You have new ideas and you play out those ideas through your creations. Mm -hmm. Whether you're creating a tower with Lego bricks or creating a poem out of words or creating an animation with scratch, all of those are creations. What's important is that you create something and by creating it, 
it then gives you new ideas. Mm. So there's this constant back and forth of having ideas and then making something in the world, mm -hmm. and that gives you new ideas, so you make new ideas. So there's this constant feedback between making things in the world and making new ideas in your mind, and it goes back and forth. And at least when the maker activity is going well, uh, that dynamic is leading to rich learning experiences. I would hope that every student would get to partake in that. But I do, I, I worry sometimes because I see a lot of maker tools as being extremely expensive, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Scratch, granted, is a free online platform, but, um, you know, a lot of these sort of more tangible little bits, um, the things that you can physically hold in your hand, they're not always that cheap. Mm -hmm. So do you ever feel concerned for, you know, students of all socioeconomic backgrounds being able to access these types of activities or ideals? Yeah. Well, I think with any new technology, there's some issues around access. Mm -hmm. um, the good news is the technologies do continue to fall in, fall in price. So over time, uh, that the access gap will become less so because things are becoming less expensive over time. For me, I think the thing I can get concerned about more than the access gap is a type of fluency gap that even where certain kids have access to new technologies, but they don't use it in a way to really become fluent with the technology. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of kids who have access to some type of you know, game console where they're playing games, and that is can be expensive as right. well. Yeah, PS2s are not cheap. But what, it's not what do the kids use? Xbox? <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> but, but it's not necessarily, but if all you're doing is you know, you know, interacting with the screen and playing a game, that's not the same type of rich learning experience as designing and creating. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think what's most important is to make sure that we provide all kids with the experiences of designing and creating. And again, there are all types of inexpensive materials you can use for designing and creating. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some newer ones that are more expensive. Uh, hopefully we'll try to get those less expensive over time. Uh, but I think what's most important is figuring out the approach to, the approach to activity and learning that's, that we want to provide for young people. And, you know, it's sort of one of my big last questions. You've been in this business for how many years now? Am I allowed long, to ask that? Yeah, well, I <laughs> actually... A really long time. I've, I've, I've been at MIT more than 30 years now. Okay, good. That's all we need yeah. to know. Um, so you've seen, uh, you know, maker activities and probably the more general umbrella of, of STEM education uh, change, grow, what have you, over the past 30 plus years. Uh What's next for STEM education? Uh, the state that schools, especially in the United States, are in right now, are we preparing kids for the future that we don't even, we can't even predict yet? Yeah. Well, I think we generally aren't doing a good enough job of preparing young people for the future. And for me, just saying STEM is not enough. You know, as someone who majored in physics and got an advanced degree in computer science and teach at MIT, of course I care about science, technology, <laughs> engineering and math, and I have a lot of experience with it. Right. But I don't see that just focusing on STEM is what's most important. In my mind, what's most important is helping everyone grow up as a creative thinker and a creative learner. Um, and new technologies can help support that, but only if we use them the right way. Uh, I think we're living in a time when things are changing more rapidly than ever before. Uh, things have become obsolete more quickly than ever before. The one thing we know for sure is that, you know, that young people today will face a nonstop stream of uncertain and unpredictable situations in the future. Mm -hmm. So they need to be able to think creatively and act creatively. That's going to be the key to 
success and happiness in the future. Uh, if we want young people to grow up to think creatively, then the root of creatively and creativity is create. We need to give them the opportunities to create and to support them in learning how to create and express themselves. Uh, so I have no doubt that this has become increasingly important in the future, uh, that if we really want to have a generation of kids who grows up thinking creatively, we need to give them opportunities to create, to make. Uh, now, it's not easy to implement that well, uh, so it's not that this will change overnight. And educational systems are not easy to change quickly. They, there's a lot of inertia. I sometimes say that I'm short-term pessimistic and long-term optimistic because I do know how difficult it is to change systems and to change mindsets. Mm. We need to have people rethink the, what are the most important goals of education and learning. Uh, we need to rethink the structure of educational systems. That's not easy to do. Mm -hmm. But I think all the cultural trends are pushing in a direction that creative thinking will be more important in the future than ever before. So things will have to move in that direction. Most people will see that if they want their, their children to grow up, to, be, to thrive in tomorrow's society, they'll need to support more creative activities. So just as one final last shot of a question, just throwing it out there, do you think that every student should be learning how to code in schools these days? Yes, for the same reasons that every student should learn how to write. We don't expect every student to grow up become, to become a professional writer or a professional journalist, but we want everyone to learn to write, to be able to express themselves, to share their ideas, and to feel that they're part of the conversation of the world. I want everyone to grow up learning to code for the same reasons, not because everyone's gonna grow up to become a professional programmer, most people won't, but coding is another way of expressing yourself, just like writing. It's a way of organizing, expressing, and sharing your thoughts and ideas with others. We want everyone to grow up being able to develop their voice. Uh, so I, I sometimes say that coding is a way to develop your thinking, mm -hmm. you know, different strategies for mm -hmm. solving problems and designing, mm -hmm. to develop your voice, to express your ideas, and to develop your identity, to feel that you're someone who can make a difference in the world, who can actively contribute to the world. So we don't want people just interacting with computers in the future. We want them to feel that they have a voice, they can express themselves, and they're a full and active participant in the society. And I think having everyone learn to code, just like having everyone learn to write, is an important part of people growing up to be full and active participants in tomorrow's society. Fantastic. Mitch, we really appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Okay. Nice talking with you. Thanks for listening, listeners. If you're interested in hearing more interviews like this or checking into our weekly podcast, check out soundcloud.com slash edsurge. We'll see you next time.
Hello, listeners. This is Mary Giamatta from AdSurge coming to you with a very special AdSurge on Air Extra. Mitch Resnick, or Mitch for short, knows his making from a lot of different angles. He's been in the business for more than 30 years, and it's safe to say that he's seen the maker movement and the state of STEM education in general go through its phases. He's currently the Lego Pappard Professor of Learning Research and head of the lifelong kindergarten group at the MIT Media Lab, where he and his team have developed products familiar to many a science educator, the specifically the programmable brick technology that inspired the Lego Mindstorms Robotics Kit and Scratch, an online computing environment for students to learn about computer science. We sat down with Resnick recently in his office at the MIT Media Lab to ask, is making something that every school should be doing? And are all interpretations of making of equitable valuable? 